as they're heading to the back. We're going to be doing things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to be taking a pause from our Testify series. Remember the last few weeks and the weeks coming after this, we've been in the middle of a series called Testify, Tracing Christ to the Old Testament. Well, we're taking a pause in that series this morning to invite a guest preacher. And the reason for that is because this Sunday is actually Reformation Sunday. The last Sunday in October is a time when the church celebrates the Reformation, celebrates the reclamation of the gospel and the word of God and justification by faith as the center point of all that we believe and what the scriptures point to. And so we've started a tradition here at Providence for the last couple of years on Reformation Sunday of inviting a guest preacher to come and preach to us. The reason for that is we want to celebrate the fact that we are not the only church in the area that loves the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not the only church that celebrates what was reclaimed in the Reformation by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and their associates. And so as we look out around Johnson County and around the Kansas City area, we should celebrate and rejoice that there are like-minded churches. We're not identical churches. We have our distinctives. There are things that make each of us unique. But there are millions of people in this metro area who need to hear the gospel, who need to hear of the way God saves through His Son. And so this morning, each year on Reformation Sunday, we have an opportunity to pause, invite a preacher to come, and share with us some tenet of the Reformation in a sermon, and rejoice in the fact that there's another church somewhere within shouting distance of Providence that we are joined hands with. And so this morning, we've got Aaron Johnson. I'm going to invite him forward in a second. And Aaron is the associate pastor at Mission Road Bible Church. So they are on Mission Road as the name says. What's your cross street there? Is it 79th and Mission? So they're over there in Prairie Village area proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aaron serves as an associate pastor. He's also their head worship leader, head worship pastor. And so it's a privilege to have Aaron with us to hear from God's Word, and to remember that there is a body over there that we are joined hands with, that is faithfully preaching Christ and Him crucified. And so, as I invite Aaron up now, please welcome him to Providence for preaching, and please remember Mission Road Bible Church in your prayers. They are our partners in the Gospel. Come on up, Aaron. Yellow light, it's on. Good morning. Sorry, I forgot about that. Um, well, thank you for the privilege to be here. It is a joy. It is a blessing. It's been a, a real fun time getting to know uh, Matthew over the course of the last couple of months. It actually kind of, we, we sat down with uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Rick Holland, had lunch over at BRGR, or Burger, depending on how you say it. Um, you know, and, and Matthew explained what uh, what they you, you guys try to do here every year, and he said, "Rick, would you come?" And Rick said, oh, "I can't." But how about this guy? And so I, I was foisted upon uh, Matthew and you guys, and uh, and and Matthew was gracious enough to not refuse that. So hopefully, um, <laughs> that's very kind. Um, but it it is a joy. Um, it is a joy to know even what you said in terms of the partnership of the gospel. Kansas City is too big for one particular body to uh, represent Christ well enough and broadly enough. And so to know that um, you guys love the same Lord and Savior and serve the same Lord and Savior that we do and are uh, ministering His gospel in this area where we, um, northeast 
of you guys would, would be doing the same thing is exciting. You know, may God bless that and, and richly work in the Kansas City area uh, in that regard. It's, it's funny. How many of you guys have been watching the, um, the World Series? Anybody? And you're all rooting for the Red Sox, obviously. So um, we're, we're Red Sox fans. But you know what's interesting? When you, when you watch the pitcher and the batter get ready to face off, boy, they, they've got all these things they do. Every pitch has to be, you know, this, 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 this system that they go through in order to get ready to pitch. And then the, and then the batter's got to do his, you know, um, Dustin Pedroia, the Red Sox, does this funny face-stretching thing. I don't know if you've noticed. But anyway, it's, it's these rituals that, um, that baseball players do. And, and, and it's like they, they have to do it. It's this, this routine that they do. So, I mean, if you watch a baseball player do it, if you watch a basketball player get ready to uh, shoot a free throw, you know, it, it, some guys it's three bounces, some guys it's five, and then a little shift with the right foot, and then they're ready to go. It, it, it's rituals that they do, wedding ceremonies, you know, based on the various cultures that we find ourselves in. There's rituals in there. Rituals are prevalent in our society all over the place. So I think about what you do before a meal. Is, do you have a ritual that you do before a meal? Or, or you know, the, the family next door, what do they do before a meal? How do they get the kids in bed? Is it a, is it a typical ritual, a routine? These, these routines are, um, are standard you know, in society. If you're like most churchgoers, that's probably your seat. I don't know. Maybe you guys shift all over the place. But I know in most of the churches I've been to, you know, this is your seat, and you come and you sit there every Sunday, and if somebody takes your seat, you're thrown into a tizzy. You don't know what to do. You know, it's, it's a ritual. I come on Sunday, and I, and I sit three rows back on the right side, and that's, that's my seat. Rituals in society, but there are also rituals in uh, religions as well. I mean, uh, if you look at the Hindus, um, there have been millions of Hindus that, that gather every, every dozen years or so to go and bathe in the river Ganges uh, out there in India. Um, and they, they're led by the, the religious heads into the incredibly dirty waters, and they bathe, believing that they have a belief that um, until they are cleansed from their sins, this cycle of death and reincarnation is going to continue. And so one of the things they can do to break that cycle is go and bathe in the river Ganges because that cleanses them. And so they're hoping to break that, that cycle in that way. There are, um, there are Filipino penitents in the Philippines, obviously, who on, uh, on Good Friday will come and they'll all gather together and they'll do this ritual of, of penitence where many of them will allow themselves to be crucified. Uh, they'll, they'll have nails driven through their, their hands, their wrists, and their feet, and they'll, they'll hang there for a period of usually short, five minutes, ten minutes, and then they'll be taken down and believing that that um, has a cleansing effect on them. They, uh, the, the, some of them, if they don't do that, they'll walk through the town wearing hoods and, and whipping themselves on their backs until they bleed. You know, Just, uh, again, seeking to, through this routine and through this ritual, um, Find absolution. Adherence to the Catholic faith. Go to a confession with priests. They seek absolution from the clergy. They air their dirty laundry to these men, and then they go and they do good deeds. They give alms. They go on uh, pilgrimages. They celebrate the Mass. 
They climb stairs on their knees. They repeat formulaic prayers, seeking cleansing through these rituals. Modern society and its self-ology, worshiping themselves, they, they come up with things like this. In the morning, as you rise, look in the mirror and say the following to yourself. I love you. (laughs) I am grateful for another day. I am trying my very best to be accountable. I am accountable for my decisions today. I forgive you. And again, they're looking in the mirror. I forgive you for anything that was not forgiven last night. I love you. And then at bedtime, as you get in bed, a hand mirror is great for this. Say the following to yourself. I love you. I am sorry for anything left undone today. I'm sorry for any fearful decisions made today. I forgive myself. I am forgiven for all of it. I am grateful for forgiveness and all of my blessings. I love you. Say as many times as needed to feel truly light and loving. All right. Again, seeking that absolution and seeking that, um, that cleansing from those dirty feelings that you don't like. And so what, what would be the common thread in these particular rituals? I think it's the, it's the sense of need for forgiveness. Okay? It's a sense of understanding that I need a right standing where as I stand now, things are off. Mankind is sinful and corrupted and to the degree that someone would admit that is, is varying, but there's an understanding that things are just wrong and they need to be fixed. And there are few things worse than being under the heavy knowledge and conviction of sin. The hand of God pressing down on you. Your soul being anguished with with the awareness that you've offended the Creator of the universe and His wrath and displeasure is elicited by that sin. Whether it's totally selfish living, whether it's being addicted to drugs or alcohol, whether it's idolizing material goods and pursuits, Maybe you're stuck in sinful patterns of abuse or criminal activity. Somebody might have a lifestyle of using and manipulating others. Maybe those websites are too tempting and you keep looking at them. Uh, There's a tendency to lash out in anger. Maybe coveting that object of desire again and again. Speaking words of sin again. Entertaining those thoughts of hatred or lust or discontentment. Any of those things can bring that conviction and that sense of anguish as God's hand presses down on your soul with the awareness that this is not right. I am not right before the one who made me. And so what do you do? You have to deal with it. Scripture is very, very clear, right? That sin draws God's wrath and judgment. Um, Hopefully, if my slides work. Did you guys get that? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay. Well, Deuteronomy 9.7. Oh yeah, there we go. Deuteronomy 9.7 says this, Remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. 2 Kings 22.17 says, Because they have forsaken me, and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Ephesians 5, 5-6 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So you can see the, the awareness of God's anger towards sin drives one to seek a solution. And oftentimes this solution takes the form of rituals, of religious rites. The problem being there's always another sin. You go through that ritual, you go through that ceremony, you go through that rite, and then five minutes later you chalk up another sin on your scoreboard, you're, you're back to ground, you know, ground zero if the ritual had any effect whatsoever, which it doesn't. But there's always that perpetual cycle of you know, ceremony, sin, ceremony, sin, ritual, sin that um, is, is ineffective. See, the, the, the cosmic books of God's accounting, they tell a sobering story. We're severely in the red. So severely, in fact, that not even an eternity of punishment can overcome the sin that we're guilty of. You understand that the biblical concept of, of, of hell it doesn't stop. That punishment that God levels at sin is never enough to fully satisfy the sense of justice that God has. Otherwise, purgatory would be true. And once you fulfilled that, then you can be done. But hell is eternal. And, and, and the, the, the wrath that God puts on sin is eternal. And so, and so what, what can we do? Not even an eternity of punishment can overcome the sin we're guilty of. No amount of good works, no variety of religious activities, no contrivance of man is capable of absolving even a single human being of his debt before God. We cannot receive enough grace through anything that we do. And this is what Paul castigates the Galatians for in chapter 3. So it's kind of depressing in some ways. Um... I mean, there's, there's not enough to, boxes to check. There's not enough to do. There's just hopelessness in, in the human life. And it really is hopeless if it's dependent on us. If it's dependent on what we can do, it's hopeless. We are uh, accountable to a divine judge who has no mercy on sin. Our idolatrous, idolatrous natures demand His wrath and punishment. And yet, there is hope because that same judge whom we are accountable to, he is the one before whom we stand guilty and yet is the one who has accomplished the solution to this dilemma. So, open up your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. I'm going to go ahead and read all those verses. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, 
but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning recognizing our incapability to come before you. We are sinners who because of our, our sin deserve your wrath. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge that we bring nothing to the plate, nothing to the table to offer to, to absolve ourselves of that. And yet, Father, all that does is highlight the greatness of our Savior. All that does is magnify the work of redemption. And so we praise You for that, and I ask that uh, You would bless this time as we look at Your Word, as we hear from Your Word, that You would make my speech clear, that You would give understanding to those who listen, and that as a, as a body together, God, we would be encouraged, edified, and walk out extolling You mightily. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to focus on verses 11 to 14 today. And, uh, and hopefully just be refreshed and amazed at uh, our Savior and His work on our behalf. So, let's read again real quick verses 11 to 14, where we're going to zero in. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... Hey, have you ever noticed how important those those conjunctions are? Man, I tell you, if it was, if it was a, a different conjunction, it, it would change everything. Um, so pay attention to the, the the ands, the buts, the fors, the the thats, all those kind of things. Anyway, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Four. There's another conjunction. By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what we're going to see this morning is a, is a study in contrasts of sort. We're going to see contrasted the person, the position, the process, and the product of two means, two uh, methods, two ways of trying to achieve Forgiveness, the way of the Mosaic Covenant, the way of the law, the way of man performing deeds with a desired end of forgiveness, and then the New Covenant way, the way of grace, of God perform, performing a deed with the effectual end of actual forgiveness 
of sins. So we'll see a contrast in person first. If you look in verse 11, we see every priest. Every priest. Inherently, there's a plurality there. You have multitude of priests. You have men who are um, appointed by God. The whole family was appointed by God. And once Aaron passed on, then his sons became priests. And once they passed on, then those sons became priests. So they're appointed to that. They, they die and somebody else becomes that priest. And then to contrast with that in verse 12, you have Christ. He, depending on the version you use. But when Christ had offered. And so you have Christ who, the writer of Hebrews has built this whole argument up through to this point of how much better Christ is than everything else. And he's contrasted him with these priests and saying Christ is the better priest. He's the ultimate high priest. There is no priest like him. And, uh, and so he's contrasting here Christ, the better priest, who is God, became man, which we saw in the beginning of chapter 10 there. He is alone in his position. He volunteered for that position. If you look back in, um, in verse 7, he says, then I, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Here I am. He's destined to live forever. We know that. Christ will never die. Chapters 5, 7, 9 um, all, all lend credence to Christ being a superior priest. So we have a contrast of the, of the person in these two ways of seeking that, that absolution of sin, that, that absolution that the Hindus seek, that the Catholics seek, that the Filipinos seek, that man as just a, uh, an innate person has a tendency to seek whether it's finding forgiveness in yourself or others or some being or, um, I mean, even the, um, the giant, giant religion you know, seeks forgiveness from animals that they may have wronged. Everybody is seeking that. And here we have men and Christ being contrasted as, as opposites. We also see a, a contrasted position Looking back in verse 11 again, every priest stands. Why do they stand? They stand because they're not done. They stand because there's always more to be done. They stand because they keep on working. They're always burning incense. Thinking back to the Levitical tribe and the Mosaic Covenant, the 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 incense that needed to be burned, the animals that needed to be sacrificed and killed, um, the blood that needed to be sprinkled, the, the consecration of all the, the objects and the people and the cleansing and the, uh, everything that needed to happen was, was a perpetual work. It just had to keep on going. And so they stand. And yet, Jesus, the better high priest, in verse 12, He sat down. He sat down. Why? Because there's nothing left to do. He's done in that regard. He has offered the sacrifice and He's done. He doesn't need to stand. He sits and He waits for everything to be put in subjection to Him because that process of His Lordship is not quite yet fulfilled. But in terms of the sacrifice that needed to be offered, He then sat down 
because it was done. Sitting demonstrates the completion of His work. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 1. <laughs> this is, they, they tell us Christ is not frantically running around saying, Father, Father, wait, I forgot. He sat. He sat in the position of authority. He's waiting patiently for the time. He doesn't have to wait. His waiting is a sign of patience. And He sits because His sacrifice is done and He waits patiently for the time when His enemies will be completely defeated and He can return in judgment and victory. And a little footnote to that, this is not a passive waiting. You know, He's not sitting there kind of twiddling His thumbs going, boy, I'm bored. There's nothing to do. We, we know that in chapter 7 and in chapter 4, Hebrews has told us that Christ is being our advocate. He is making intercession for us. Romans says a similar thing. There are other places that discuss that. That Christ's work as our Savior, in the sanctifying work, the, the cleansing of our sins, that's complete by His work, His, His, uh, His, His interaction, His involvement in our lives and in our being, in our days, is, is, is very active. So that's a separate issue. But, He sat down after He offered that sacrifice because it was done. So we've got the person. We've got every priest. We've got Christ. The priest, the high priest, the best high priest. We've got the, the position. The, every priest, they stand. And then we've got Christ, the better priest, who has sat down. And then we have a process. Back again to verse 11. Every priest stands, and here it is, daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. This is a continually repeated process with no variation. You know the little pop saying, uh, insanity? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and, and expecting a different result. Uh, there are psychologists who say, no, 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 that's not the real definition of insanity. But it's the pop saying, and, 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 and the intent is understood. I don't think this is necessarily saying you know, that this is uh, an instance of insanity, but I think there is an instance of desperation that there is desperation here for an effective way to get right with God. Look in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, uh, by halfway through, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. So we've got a yearly okay, reference. That would probably be the Day of Atonement. Saying that the Day of Atonement was in itself ineffective as well. And then here in verse 11, we see it on a daily basis. So you got the daily basis and the annual basis of these repeated processes. I mean, imagine, imagine being a priest, also being the people, but imagine day after day after day this process. Kill the animal, throw some blood. Kill the animal, burn it. Kill the animal, throw some blood. Kill the animal, burn it. Ad nauseum. Okay? We, we, it's easy to mimic that, whether in religions today or even in our own hearts and what we think sometimes we can do in our uh, kind of self-conscious, uh, self-righteousness, subconscious self-righteousness. Um, you know, we, we can um, 
do a little ceremony and recite a little formula and do a little ceremony and recite a little formula and you know day after day after day and those are hope crushing endeavors because again when is enough when is enough and and this is this is one of the system's purposes if you look in Je- back in verse 3 it says in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year it's a reminder of sin designed to drive home the fact that forgiveness was overwhelmingly needed and overwhelmingly unattainable by that means. Day after day after day, year after year after year, they did this, they did this, and it was just a reminder of their sins. Because even the psalmist understood you know, that the offering of the blood of bulls and goats, you're, you're, you're not pleased by that. So this is not like some new revelation that the New Covenant people realized, oh, hey, sins weren't forgiven by that. No, they, they knew. They knew this was not enough. And day after day, year after year. So you've got that process. Daily standing, ministering the same sacrifices. And then uh, you have contrasted with that what Christ did. He says, he when Christ had offered, in verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. What does the word single mean? One. It's not a hard word. Just once. He offered one sacrifice. Physically, He only offered Himself once in terms of the spiritual punishment that we deserve and that He took, He only offered Himself once. He endured in that moment all the wrath of God for all the redeemed. There's no leftover. The singularity of His sacrifices can be seen earlier in Hebrews as well. Chapter 7, verse 27, but look just a little bit back in 9, 25 says there, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We saw the word single repeated there as well. But it's crucial to the author's argument. If, it had, if, if, if that one single sacrifice was not sufficient, then he would have had to continue to offer himself repeatedly since the foundation of the world. And yet the one time, that single offering was enough. So we see a contrast in the, in the, two, in the two means of, a, of, of, of obtaining that forgiveness. Contrast of the person contrast of the position of that person, the process that these people have used. And now we'll look at a, 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 a contrast of the product of these things. And this really, this is really the culmination of the argument. Okay? Um, the, the author's point is not whether it was many verses once. That's not the main point. The main point is which was effective. Which product works? Okay? Which product is effectual? And uh, on the one hand, you see a product that never 
takes away sin. Back in verse 11, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. We saw that in verses 1 through 4 as well. The, the system of doing deeds and seeking forgiveness through deeds is a failure. It's just a failure. It didn't work then. It doesn't work now. No matter, no matter what facade you put over that idea of if I do X, Y, Z, then I can, I can earn or I can get or I can accrue forgiveness or I can somehow wipe these things away. No matter how you clothe that idea, it's a failure. It can never take away sin. But, on the other hand, what Christ has done brings about complete forgiveness. Verse 14, 4, By a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We need to kind of break this down a little bit. That one offering has an incredible result, an incredible product. The first aspect being, He has perfected. And in our present day mindset, we kind of think, I don't feel very perfect. I mean, look, look at what I did to my kid earlier this morning trying to get ready for church. <laughs> I'm not perfect. Uh, but that, that's, not what, um, that's not what the author means here. The, the, the perfection is not wiping away any sort of all, all of our moral flaws as we currently exist now. The perfection here is a wholeness. It's a completeness, completeness where, where once there's this gaping wound this gaping chasm of, of rottenness and filthiness between us and the Lord, our sin, that has been healed over. And that has been made whole. That wound is no longer there. That's the perfection. It's the, the standing before God where He looks at us. And, and try to wrap your mind around this. Every, every, time, that, every time that you stumble and, and you sin, try to wrap your mind around the fact that God actually looks at you and says, you are whole. Why? Because he sees Christ. But, that's what perfection refers to here. Uh, chapter 7, chapter 9, and then earlier in uh, chapter 10, make it clear that making one perfect in the usage of that, of that phrase in Hebrews refers to salvation and reconciliation with God, not not this expectation that, that now that you've been uh, saved, you, you ought to have no flaws in your life. Because that obviously is not the case. So he, ha he has perfected, aspect two, he's perfected for all time. Okay? This is not partial. This is eternal in efficacy. This, this flows from the fact that it, it was done one time and it's done. It needs no repetition because it's absolutely effective. Now, if you, if you think through that a little bit and you think, you extrapolate, what, 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 what is the possibility of the untruth of that? What if that was not the case? What would the possibilities be? Well, one possibility would be the idea that, okay, God got me started in salvation, but I need, I need to take the next 20 steps, the next 40 steps. I need to, uh, I need to finish the process that God started. And I'm sure that's a familiar concept. There are, there are many faiths 
that uh, would just blatantly claim that. And then uh, I think there's also the tendency in our own hearts and, and minds to think that ourselves. That, all right, Jesus, you got me started. Here I go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this thing. Um, or maybe it's just me. But the fact that, that the work of Christ has eternal ramifications removes the concern that God got me started. Now i got to finish it. Because what if you can't finish it? What if it gets you started and then you just don't have what it takes and you fail? Which we would. Then Christ's sacrifice is nullified and you know, we, we go to hell anyway. That's one side. But then the other side is, if Christ's sacrifice wasn't eternally effective, then what if, what if it's enough to get us into heaven and then 10,000 years into eternity, God looks at His forgiveness meter and goes, up, oh, sorry, that's all you got. Got to go somehow work the rest off. Um, go, go deal with the rest of your sin that, that Christ's sacrifice is now used up. But that's not the case, and I'm so, so grateful to God, especially when I consider what eternity is. It just, it just goes and goes and goes, and if Christ's sacrifice wasn't complete and eternal and absolutely effective, then there would be the possibility of it running out. So, Christ has perfected someone made them whole, made them right with the Lord, and that perfection lasts for all time. I'd say that sounds pretty good. I'd say that sounds like what the Hindus are hunting for, what the Catholics are hunting for, what every person is really hunting for, whether they hunt that forgiveness from themselves or from a cricket or from the clergyman or, or whatever. So it, it's it's... It's a ticket to the state of being that all these people are seeking through their various rituals. So the question is, who gets that ticket? And it's in verse 14. For by a single offering, they're single again, He has perfected, made whole, made complete for all time those who are being sanctified. So who's that? It's kind of a Kind of a tricky phrase, that word sanctified. When I read that, my first thought is the process of growing more into godliness. Right? That the process of sanctification that we typically understand as I'm saved, otherwise, or, or other, uh, otherwise known as I'm justified, right? And then I'm sanctified, and then I ultimately I'll be glorified. Okay? And that's how I gut respond to that phrase. But if you look at the word, Okay, the word is agiazo, to sanctify, to set apart, um, to make holy. When, when the author of Hebrews uses it, and he does all throughout the letter, used in chapter 2, chapter 9, here in 10, over in 13, this phrase is used not to refer to that, that process between being saved and between being perfected in eternity. Uh, you know, so basically life now, it actually is referring to the process of being saved. Does that make sense, the distinction there? Okay, so 
Although we see the English word sanctification, don't attach in this context. Don't attach that to that process there. It's attached to the process of justification, of being saved. Okay? It refers to the once-for-all status change from sinner to saved, enemy to child. The, the author of Hebrews doesn't seem to use it with reference to the ongoing process of growing in how we mirror Christ in the, in the midst of this life. So, who gets this ticket then? Who gets the ticket of being made whole for all time? It's anyone saved by the blood of Christ. The entire family of God. And you ask, well, why does it say those who are being saved? Because he's looking at the whole pool of those elect children of God. And that's, there, there are some who have been saved. There are some who are saved now. There are some who will be saved soon. And there, Praise the Lord. And then there are some who will be saved in a while. And so as a pool, that pool of elect children of God is in the process of being saved. And anyone who's in that elect pool, they are made perfect for all time. So hopefully that can kind of skew some of your understanding of that word right there, getting it out of our Christianese context and looking at how the, the author of Hebrews uses it. So, I mean, if, if they were saved a thousand years ago, they're totally forgiven, made right with God. If they were saved ten minutes ago, totally forgiven, saved by God. If you're saved in three weeks, totally forgiven, totally saved by God, has eternal ramifications, it all applies. If they're saved six seconds before they die, they are totally saved, totally forgiven by God. And that pool of those elect children who are being saved has this eternal stamp of forgiven, effectually forgiven. Listen to Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, Some have taken the present passive participle as a remark about the ongoing process of sanctification for the believer. But the notion of being sanctified or made holy in Hebrews has to do with a definitive consecration to God through the effective cleansing from sin that qualifies them for fellowship with God. So, ah, what, what a glorious result from this contrast. This contrast of the person. This contrast of the, the, the position, of the process, and now the product. There, night and day, where multiple priests have failed, one has succeeded. Where multiple priests labored time after time, day after day, year after year, to no avail. Jesus has made one sacrifice for all time. Where multiple priests remained standing for multiple generations, our high priest sat down with a finished result. And where one system based on man failed to forgive even one sin. This other system, based on God and His work through His Son, Jesus Christ, has decisively prevailed for all time. And as a result, the entire pool of those chosen people for salvation have been eternally made whole. And maybe you ask, well, what in the world does this have to do with Reformation Day? I mean, we're talking about tenets of the Reformation, tenets that were those divisive lines between Luther and Calvin and even Zwingli and, and the Catholic, the Roman Catholic tradition and faith. 
Well, a serious point of contention and divisiveness between those two camps was the dispute between Catholics and Reformers about how exactly one attains forgiveness. The Catholic view would be rituals, as we discussed earlier, and that's not just the Catholics, but it's, it's you know, mankind as a whole. That's our innate bent. Particularly, though, celebrating the Mass, wherein the grace of Christ is reapplied to those observing Him being crucified anew. The Council of Trent, their authoritative church council, taught that the Mass is the same as Calvary, only the manner of offering being changed from bloody to unbloody. So they sought to apply Christ's blood afresh to sins committed that had not yet been cleansed. You see a Mass, and you get the grace of Christ applied to your sin. You sin, you sin, you sin, you sin. You see a Mass, you get the grace of Christ applied to your sin. You sin, you sin, you sin, you sin. That's, that's how that works. And then there was also confession and penance and purgatory, um, you know, and, and, and buying the, um, what's that word, where they bought the little, um, there you go, indulgences. Buying the indulgences, that was the real kicker for Luther. Right, that set it all off. Um, but li- listen, to, listen to this. Uh, one of the very first autobiographies, a woman named Marjorie Kemp in the 1400s. She thought she was dying and she called for a priest. She thought she was dying and she feared condemnation because she had a sin that she hadn't confessed in the midst of confession yet. It was one of those, one of those sins that she just didn't want to confess because it was so deep and so dark. And now she's dying and she thought, I need to get this off. I need to, I need to be forgiven of this. So the priest, though, he came, he was in a hurry, and he walked through the confessional formula too quickly for her to confess that particular sin and get absolution from it. And so this is what she writes in her autobiography. And you can follow along if you like. It's kind of funny language. And anon, for dread, she had, she's referring to herself in third person, she had... Dread of damnation on that one side, and his, Christ's, his sharp reproving on that other side, this creature, referring to herself, went out of her mind and was wonderly vexed and labored with spirits half year, eight weeks, and odd days. And in this time she saw, as her thought, devils open their mouths, all inflamed with burning lows of fire, as they should have swallowed her in, sometime ramping at her, sometime threatening her, sometimes pulling her and hauling her both night and day, the foresaid time. So for six months, eight weeks and a few days, she gets thrown into this intense spiritual agony and depression because she knows her sin is condemning her and she has not been absolved of that sin. And she feels it to that kind of a depth. And the hopelessness, these desperate attempts at reconciliation through means that are inherently insufficient and incapable is so prevalent. And Luther condemned these rituals. Calvin condemned these rituals, specifically the idea of re-sacrificing Christ at the Mass. In his writing called This Is My Body, he says, It is quite certain that Christ cannot be sacrificed over and above the one single time He sacrificed Himself. Such daily sacrificing is the greatest blasphemy and abomination ever known on earth. Why did he feel so strongly? Because of the truth that we just talked about in Hebrews. 
Because it destroys that contrast. It destroys the effectiveness of what Christ did that one time that forever makes perfect those who are being sanctified. And so the case culminates here. The case that the author of Hebrews has been building where he presents the supremacy of Christ all throughout. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He has a better covenant. He has a better ministry. Christ is better. Christ is the best. There is none like Christ. Why, why, why? To exalt Christ? Yes. But also to give unrefutable evidence that it is done. Because of who Jesus is, and where He sits now, and what He accomplished, those who put their faith in the forgiving sacrifice of Jesus Christ are once and for all saved. Period. And now this is important. Despite what some would say, Jesus doesn't provide blanket forgiveness for all people. There is no happy ending for every person in humanity. Humanity doesn't deserve that. You and I don't deserve that. No one deserves that. And the Bible doesn't state that. But it does say that there is a salvation, a complete and total salvation that is attainable by faith through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came as a man. He lived the perfect sinless life that we could not, and that's the righteousness that God looks at us and and sees on us if we're in Christ. So he lives that perfect life and then he dies on the cross and he absorbs all of God's wrath being poured out on him for all the sins of all time for all the redeemed people. And then he's buried and he's raised from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, thus totally conquering sin, totally conquering death, and he has a claim. If you ask me, I'll forgive you. Because I've paid the price. If you become where you once were a slave of unrighteousness, if you become my child, I will give you forgiveness and you will be my slave for righteousness. There's a call to possession there where Christ's eternal act brings about that complete shift of focus and ownership, where we are Christ at that point. And it's only by faith in Christ, a a faith that He gives through grace. But once you put your faith in God's Son, Jesus, the Messiah, and His once-for-all work on the cross, it's done. You, You don't need religious rites. You are sanctified, as the author of Hebrews uses it. Justified. You are made holy. You are made complete. You don't need penance. You're holy. You don't need to feel guilty because positionally you're forgiven. There is no guilt for sins if you are in Christ. And there's a whole nether sermon on how to deal with the sins that we, that we do commit while we're in Christ. And that's not to put that aside, but it's to, it's, we're looking at what he says in Hebrews here. And he says, it's done. The forgiveness is complete. Positionally, there is no if and or but if you are in Christ. 
It's done. You don't need good deeds to balance your accounts. Your account is balanced. In fact, as, as, as one person said, you know, it's not like you have a million dollar debt and that's forgiven and you're at zero. It's actually you got the million dollar debt, that's forgiven, and you're given all the money in the world. So actually the balance is kind of swing the other way, really. Richard Phillips says this, there's a popular Christian bumper sticker that says, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. But in an important sense, this is not true. In the eyes of God, you have been made perfect. In a past tense way, you have been made perfect because you are in Christ. You are a beneficiary of His perfection. And so what, what's the takeaway today? What's, what's the, what's the to-dos? Well, there, there really are no to-dos. This is one of those sermons where I hope you go away just going, Wow, what a God. What a Savior. What, what, what a privilege and a blessing to be called a child of this God. And so I say we rest, we rejoice, and we worship. Rest in what Christ has done. Not what you can add to it, because you can't. Rest in what Christ has done. Rejoice in that. Let that rejoicing flow out of your lips and out of your, out of your actions when you're in the workplace, when you're at school, when you're in your neighborhood. Just rejoice because it's done. And then worship. Let that, let that fuel your songs. And they, these were great songs this morning, great lyrics that, that took the truth of God and put into a melody that just draws out this, this voicing of that praise, right? So let this truth, this knowledge that when I come on Sunday, even though I don't deserve it, and even though I've done these sins that I need to deal with because I love my Savior, even though that's true, when I come on Sunday and I sing these songs and I give Him praise, I do it because I'm in Christ and I am perfect, complete in Him. And that is so good to be. So hopefully that blesses and encourages you. The whole book of Hebrews is, is amazing in the truths that it, that it shows and, and the exaltation of Christ and um, causes your heart to sing. So let's pray together. I'll be done. Father, thank You for Your grace. It is so gracious of You even to give us this Bible, this book of Your words written down for our sake. We thank You for its perfection. We thank You for how, how wise You are to present so many facets of life and theology and understanding of who we are. Um, God, Please use your spirit in each of our hearts this coming week to bring this to mind, to, to, to draw our hearts to worship you even at the odd times of the day, to just suddenly be struck by the fact that my God's forgiven me. Thank you so much, Father. We know that it was intentional. You planned before time to send your Son to pay that price that we could not pay. And for that we are eternally grateful because it is eternally effective. To you be all the glory and all the honor. It's in your Son's name. Amen.